Welcome to the Studio Musician Academy podcast. Today's guest is Steve Mackey. Steve has been holding down the low end as a mainstay session player for over two decades. He comfortably floats between genres, having supported artists like Luke Combs, Indy Lucinda Williams, The Wallflowers, Dilbert McClinton, and Dolly Parton. Mackey is an ACM Bass Player of the Year nominee and has been featured in the house bands for Bonnaroo Super Jam, CMA Fest, and the NSAI Songwriter Hall of Fame. Steve is the bass playing version of a champion racehorse. He discovered his passion, put blinders on, and played one note in front of the other through an amazing journey to the metaphorical finish line of success in the recording industry. In this episode, we unpack the twists and turns of navigating the roller coaster ride of a music career. Mackey breaks down his creative mindset when approaching a session and dives deep into developing the skill sets that can keep a musician's name at the top of a producer's call list. He believes being a great session player means having the instincts to get the job done while still bringing something fresh to the table every time. And I can say he absolutely nailed that in our conversation as well. Let's get to the show. Mackie, what does being a great session player mean to you? It means that you have earned people's trust. It means it means that you have a pretty high vocabulary of music. It means you could make immediate musical choices and then change them just as quickly. It's not it's easier said than done sometimes, but those are some of the things that it means to me. So you build trust and you develop your instincts. Where did you start to develop your instincts around making records? I developed all that stuff in Nashville uh, when I first came to Nashville. A lot of it is just paying attention and listening and observing on sessions and, and listening in the moment. And when did you move to Nashville? I moved to Nashville in 88. I moved here with a gig. I was uh, young and never left. So when you when you moved here, so was was your idea that that you were going to live in Nashville and be a touring musician or a studio musician? Mine's I, I was always drawn to studio musicians. Those were the guys uh, that I really wanted to model my career after, that I wanted to emulate. And and they were the classic 70s, 80s studio guys, typically in New York or LA. I wasn't really hip to what was happening in Nashville then. People like, uh, for bass players, people like Lee Sklar and Bob Glaub and the California guys were the first group of Musicians that I latched onto as a kid, the first names that I noticed on records. And that was a good introduction to playing songs or just to recognizing songs and, and uh, being familiar with that, especially when you apply it to songwriters in Nashville. Um, so when did you get on your first session in Nashville? My first session was within days of moving here. Wow. Um, it was a big lesson. I It probably shouldn't. Uh, have happened, but I wound up on this session all, with all established session guys. I had never seen a number chart. I didn't have a five string, and the first thing they asked me to do was play low. It was go low. <laughs> so the guy was, so the engineer was like, "Well, man, you could just tune one string down. You know, tune your E string down to a D, and you can do it." Those guys, all, with the exception of one guy, they just kind of watched me kick and squirm and eventually go under. Um, and they sent me home at noon with a check. Thanks. I think we got everything we need here. We're good. <laughs> I hid in my apartment and thought my career was over immediately. About six or eight months later, I ran into one of the guys on the session. The one guy who was super cool to me. I ran into him eight months after that session, and I mentioned it to him kind of sheepishly. And he goes, oh, yeah, they've re-recorded that project three, four times. He said, we all got erased on that thing. You know, it's not like they'd been thinking about how horrible I was for the past three months. Big lesson. And also a big lesson, like I say, because this cat was 
so great to me. As I was walking to my car, they were breaking for lunch. As I was walking to my car, just dejected, like not knowing, kind of shell-shocked, he walked up to me and said, hey, man, why don't you follow me and let me take you out to lunch? And that's kind of thing is important to offer someone, especially a young musician, that you see, really, it's just a matter of they just need experience. They just need information. So after that first uh, situation that you had, what, what was what was sort of, what do you remember being sort of the next stage? Did you go, were there certain things that you went back and started woodshedding and working on recognizing that? Or did you kind of just start to learn more over time as more opportunities came up? I dove into the scene and played live and played clubs and just started meeting people. Eventually somebody would have a session. Hey, can you do this? At that time, they were mostly custom kind of things. After a couple of years, I wound up joining Leroy Parnell's band. It's still a little bit like this, but nowhere near what it used to be. There was a there was a very defined separation between road musicians and studio musicians. Leroy and Marty Stewart, probably, in the 90s, were uh, two artists that had their band on records. And so we started playing on Leroy's records, and they were on the radio. We had hit songs. We had number one songs. Of course, other musicians noticed that. And I also met, there were always, the sessions were always supplemented with one or two established cats. Like, that's where I met Dan Dugmore and Michael Spriggs, great acoustic guitar player, session guy in town. They would come in with Leroy's band and do these records. Those were the first places I got real-time experience playing on records. I've, I've heard that happen uh, quite a bit, but in a slightly different scenario where other musicians have talked about getting involved with a group that does like a, a monthly like residency or like a weekly showcase or something, and that thing becoming like the happening spot in town. Yes. And they weren't necessarily like making a lot of money from it because it was just a fun kind of hang jam right. sort of thing, but it became the spot that everybody went. And so because they invested their time in it, then they were seen on stage in that spotlight around those other players that were established, and now they have yes, that's a little right. more you know, that's credibility. Right. And I think there's something to be said for creating your own scene. If you're not, if you're not doing sessions and you want to be, um, you don't feel yourself moving as fast in your career as you, as you want to be, create something yourself. Generate some work. We're all looking for work. Generate some work and call some of those people you want to be around. Um, not only are you giving them work, and especially if it's, good, if it's a good musical situation, that's really what we all want anyway. So right. people will jump at the opportunity and come back. But also, that's the setting where you get to know, you develop relationships, you get to know them. You can ask them um, practical questions about what we do. So where would you say that you started to find your more refined technique within the, the way that sessions are generally run after um, the Leroy Parnell record? Yeah, I started uh, probably, I came in, I started playing with Winona in um, 2000. I came in behind Willie Weeks, who was, who was a legend and one of my heroes and, and was playing on her records. So I spent a lot, I paid a lot of attention to what, how he played on her records. Uh, and how he played on Vince Gill records and all that kind of stuff. I had a little library at that time of of guys and go-to references to kind of learn um, what was happening and what people liked. Do you remember the things that you might have heard specifically? Like whether it's a, a, a approach or a, a part or like a philosophy that you started to hear. What things stand out where you're like, oh, I'm picking up on that and that's what they do and people seem to like that? What would be an example? Yeah, well, there were there are cl classic albums now. Um, 
there's a Rodney Crowell record called Diamonds and Dirt that that uh, Michael Rhodes played on. That was uh, just a great through and through country bass record. There were um, contemporary Christian records being recorded at the time that Tommy Sims was Tommy Sims and Jimmy Sloss were at the front of. It was all that kind of stuff because people need to be comfortable with you. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, if it's possible, you should be able to get any gig you want. You can get a gig playing like somebody else. You keep a gig playing like yourself. You keep a gig being honest with yourself musically because you can only chase what somebody else is doing for so long. But you can certainly get in the door and make people feel comfortable that way. And that's what I did a lot of times back in those days. The first time that I really started moving into that scene on a regular basis was with, I started doing everything that Jeffrey Steele uh, was recording. And he at the time was a, and still is really anything, even if his name was on it, it was getting cut and probably going to be a hit song. And those situations were the first times that I was in the room and wasn't one of the guys. You know, everybody else in the room was an established session player and had been for a long time. How did you end up getting in that room? relationships that I developed in town. You know, I started doing demos, all the demos at a publishing company called Windswept. And at the time, Windswept was like Al Anderson, Randy Hauser, Derek George. They're all established guys now. They were all just young guys. We were all just young guys, uh, you know, trying to come up, Mm -hmm. trying trying to make a name. The Studio Musician Academy was created to make expert mentorship available to every musician who is passionate about making a living with their instrument. Through sharing the lessons we've learned on our journey, we hope to provide you with the resources to blaze your own trail. We'd love to invite you to join the band and check out our training sessions at studiomusicianacademy.com. We have a deep catalog of exclusive bonus content that is free for band members as well as complete training sessions for many of our guests. Join the band today for free at studiomusicianacademy.com. And that's how the generations before, that's how they did it. You know, when Rhodes and Eddie Bears and that um, class of, of musicians, they all learned how to play songs in the basement of Sony Tree, right. doing demos for Harlan Howard and all that. It was just running them every day. And then as you as you come up you, and your click is becomes somebody becomes a songwriter, somebody becomes a producer, and it, it, everybody rises up like that. It happens over and over again. Right. Yeah. It's just that generational thing that continues to. Right. Which know, is testimony sure. also to just, just chill, just relax and, you know, be in the, be in the moment and trust the process. Cause that's how it happens. Were there, were there any like funny moments that you had like early on in your, in your uh, session career that'd be a fun, entertaining. It's a name drop moment. Can I drop a name? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Stan Lynch. Who's a, who was the original drummer in the Heartbreakers, this legendary rock musician. He's also a, a great songwriter and producer. I got to work with him, and, and I was just flipping out, man. I, I was just playing. He's a very passionate guy, for, for one. When he loves something, um, he's in your face. He's like this far from your face, and he's screaming, I love this, you know, letting you know. How happy he is with it. When he doesn't like something, it's the exact same thing. <laughs> He's right on you. I fucking hate that. So I'm doing this session with him, and it's the first time we've met. I came in through a couple mutual friends. He's frustrated with how the song is going because it's not rootsy enough. It's like it's too smart sounding. 
And so he's pacing back and forth on the floor and, and no, this just needs to be, I'm playing at the front of my ability, man, doing everything I can do to please this guy. So he'll, so I'll make a good impression. He'll call me back. And so he's pacing back and forth and he's, he's kind of yelling at us. Like it's a, like he's a football coach. He's going, no, it just needs to be, it just needs to be like, we're all teenagers and, and we, we don't know how to play. And just like, caveman knuckle dragging just dumb as a rock and he's passing right in front of me at the time and he looks at me and he goes you're killing it don't change a thing i thought okay cool that's the end <laughs> that's the front of what i can do is be dumb, dumb as a rock but bass bass guitar so sometimes you got to do that <laughs> yeah well you were the perfect person for the yeah, game apparently. yeah man it's one big note at a time so when you are in that scenario and you're trying to figure out the right way to address a song what are some of the things that inform the approach that you're going to you're going to take from maybe the moment that you hear the work tape and you start thinking about how am I going to address this this song tonally and part wise? Well, as a bass player, first and foremost is space. You just can't emphasize that enough. Even if you wind up lacking, even if you wind up holding back in in spots where you should throw stuff in and you definitely there are times in a, in a song that you need to do that. You have to you have to understand that sonically bass guitar draws your ear in anyway. Even if somebody doesn't realize that's what's happening. Even just the least little bit of movement in the wrong place, it's just going to take a listener away from the song. That's that's the one thing you don't want to do. I also think it's a it's a trap. It has been a trap for me to not pay attention to what's happening with my headphone mix. The uh, the more I do this, the smaller my headphone mix becomes. So because it always, uh, you know, it always sounds so much better. You take the phones off and go in and, and listen to it on the playback on the speakers. You're hearing the whole song. So I, I'm trying to shrink everything down to where I'm hearing the whole song. And when you say smaller and shrink down, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean li literally volume. If you're listening to yourself, especially with bass too loud in the phones, you're focused on it uh, when you should be focused on the song. Right. Uh, which means maybe you've maybe I just play one note and it's coming it's coming at me so loud in the headphones that I think one note is fine it's compensating but you go back and hear playback and it's like man everything's just laying there it needed momentum it needed movement i didn't realize that because my bass is too loud in the headphones it was fine to me it was filling up my whole skull right you know yeah, yeah so making sure that you got a good balance yeah. you know yeah between i think the game here as a uh as a song player is to zoom out there are so many nuanced levels of that. I don't think you can do it enough. The secret is to know is to is to just be fluid like that to come to come in and out of that. You need to hear the you need to hear the song as a whole. Mm -hmm. There are times when I focus on what the drummer and I are doing, and and um, I I think you just need to be fluid. So I imagine that being able to hear the song as a whole. Uh, takes a lot of practice of focusing on those other elements like the drums yes. or the right hand of the guitar player right. to figure out where you're going to land. And then that starts to become a little bit more instinctual where you can feel it. Yes. So before before you're at that point where you're able to like totally zone out, what things do you 
pay attention to, even if it's uh, subconsciously now, that you would pay attention to in the in the drums or in uh, you know the guitars or what other uh, singular elements sort of inform your approach and how you might play. First and foremost, the vocal, and I'm I'm not really looking for spots to spotlight the bass. There are times when a song may need something. There, 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 there may be a, a short little window. I heard, I heard one of these episodes and uh, where Mark Hill mentioned that there might be something in a vocal you could catch, and that's great advice um, because those opportunities will come up. That that's also why you need to pay attention to what else is going on in a in a guitar part in a piano part. That's where your vocabulary comes in. That's where your library of uh, whatever you have been listening to since you started playing music, that's where you draw from. That's where you instinctually need to know that somebody's playing a chord with a flat five and you as a bass player, why are you just root five and all over the, you know, you don't want to do that, especially if you're going to do a fill somewhere. You know, one of the coolest things somebody did for me on a session, it was on a, on a record. He didn't call me out. But that literally was what I was doing in an intro, and it was a uh, some kind of chord with a flat five, and and my buddy came over to me privately and said, "Hey man, you you probably don't want to land on that note because it's going to rub with what else is going on here." Cool of him to do because he didn't do it publicly, right? But those are the those are the little things you pay attention to. I mean, you gotta mm-hmm. I, if you can make your mix sound like a like you're listening to a record. With with just a two mix, that's the way to go for me. So when when you're thinking back on your building your vocabulary of music, when you're listening through and you're and you're starting to look at the the credits on the back of the record and seeing yeah. what players played on there, are there certain things that you started to notice within uh, that that listening process, or were you like playing along and trying to like match the parts? What sort of things do you? What sort of practices do you feel like helped you build that vocabulary? To, to learn to over-prepare and learn things inside out. I am a voracious music listener. It's really, it's what I do more than anything else. After a full day of playing music, I will go home and listen to music. And I'm constantly asking people for new stuff to listen to that I go check out. Things that you, things that you dig musically, learn them inside and out. I would argue that that's even more valuable. We, we all need to have a knowledge of our instrument and a knowledge of some kind of theory, whether you can break it down like that or not. You don't need to. But if you dig this record, learn it song to song, the entire thing. Um, Eventually, those things are going to seep into your playing, and there will be situations where they come out, uh, and you don't even realize it's happening. Also, on on a practical level, Listen to what's out now, what people are cutting, what's on the radio, and what players are doing there and how they're moving forward there. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with copying anything anybody's doing. Well, for you, was there something that if you, if you were to go back and like kind of analyze yourself, you know, you mentioned the idea of being able to replicate what the what the legends that have came before you done, but then at a point in order to survive, we have to be able to find our own identity. Yes. Is there anything that if you went back and you like analyzed yourself? What do you think folks would say your 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 identity would be within that? Are there any things that stand out? It would just be feel. It would be I, I don't think anything I'm playing on records 
<laughs> you know, somebody's going to point out and go, oh my God, that's incredible technical bass playing. Have you ever had an experience with like a, with a producer like that, where you're, you feel like you have to come in with that confidence, they're very high level, you know, producer, and you're sort of trying to figure out how much do you push versus how much do you just follow yeah, their leads? Yes. And, and sometimes you can sell things, um, just through your confidence. Other times it can get you in trouble. You know, I've had, I had a situation, I had, uh, an opportunity blown one time from, from a fairly well-known unnamed rock producer. We had run through the song a couple times. Um, the drummer and I kind of had a vibe going for what the song was going to be. And then when the red light went on, the groove completely changed. The total, and I'm not sure why we weren't really talking about it, but the groove completely changed. And part of me was like, whoa, what's happening? I'm just going to, in an instant, you had to make that decision. Am I going to keep this part or not? You could be listening to any podcast in the world, but right now you're here with us. And we want to thank you for listening. We created this community to make expert mentorship available to every musician who is passionate about making a living doing what they love. Do you know someone who would enjoy this podcast? If so, we'd be grateful if you could hit that share button and spread the good word on the Studio Musician Academy. If you're not part of the band yet, you can grab your free account today at studiomusicianacademy.com. Thank you for listening. Now back to the show. You know, when in doubt, commit. Even if if you're going to play a wrong note, play it loud, man, because... Um, you don't want to you you want to sell something. It's wor- it's worse to me to be tentative and hesitant. And I tried to force the issue. My ego tried to force the issue in this song with this bass part. And even at the end of the day, I didn't feel right about that song. And we were already two or three songs ahead, and it wound up getting replaced. I could have easily gone back and done that, uh, redone that, but I didn't have any. I, I didn't have the. Uh, the direction at the time to do it, it was left up to me. And my ego made the wrong decision. And that track wound up getting replaced, which happens to everybody. That's another thing is we all get replaced and we all replace. You got to get it. If your feelings get hurt from that, you got to get over it quick. So when it comes to um, equipment, when you're preparing to uh, be able to deliver what you need in a session, earlier on, we were talking about your first session where you got asked for a five string and right. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't there. What sort, what sort of uh, mainstay pieces do you make sure you have at every session? I make sure that I have a couple Fender basses, usually P basses. I probably will have a five string, although I don't play a uh, five string primarily. It's easier to f- sometimes to pick up a five string. I, I mostly tune down four string basses just because I've prefer that. Um, I always have some kind of hollow body. I don't really have modern pickup configurations and thing like that. It's very fundamental. Uh, do you, are you someone that, that brings in uh, a, a rack, like preamp compressor yeah. uh, D- DI? Yeah, it's a very s- simple setup. I've got a pedal board. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of effects. It's mostly kind of overdrive and fuzz kind of stuff. Um, I have a... Uh, I've got a, a very simple rack with a pre with a preamp and compressor. Gotcha. What do you use in that rack? I use a '90s Neve preamp, fifty thirty two, a Chandler RS one twenty four compressor that I thought was going to be way easier than it is because it's only got two knobs and that's my <laughs> speed. It's it's deep. 
Yeah. Be careful. Know what you're doing. What advice would you give about starting to build your gear arsenal and how much do you have the options versus simplifying it to make sure that every time you show up, you got a clean signal? Yeah, I'd go unless you're inclined any, probably even when you're inclined, I would go with the more simple, the better, the more straight ahead. I I used to think um, because I am not really an engineer, consequently, the my tone comes from my hands more than not. Yeah. And when you say so on base specifically, the tone coming from your hands, what things have you learned that have had the, the impact on that 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 uh, inf- inf- creates the tone? Well, just know your instrument. You're probably not going to get to the, the, the level of professional session musician if you don't know your instrument anyway. And, and that means... That means know sonically what you can get out of it all over. If you're playing up on the neck, if you're playing back, you know, by the bridge, playing with your thumb and then hitting, just just know the whole book. Moving on um, through your uh, through your career, as you got started to get comfortable in in town, um, were, were there any were there any moments where you, where you kind of felt like you had hit the the uh, I feel like I've made it sort of like you know stage or what has that journey been like since you got to the point where you felt at least comfortable and kind of understanding how things worked in town. You had a few good opportunities. You're kind of now one of the one of the guys in the small guys or girls in the small circle. Um, was there a moment at that point where where you where you felt like, yeah, this thing happened, and I feel like this is sort of like I feel established now. I think when you look around at your friends who you who you admire and consider some of the best musicians in the country, in the world, even at least at the front of our industry. And it's just a normal day, and you're right there, you know, right in the middle of it. I, I'm not sure when that happened. Mm-hmm. I think I, there are still plenty of times when I kind of realize that that's happening. To, to realize also there's just so much further we have to go. I'm happy that I'm established. Uh, this is what I've, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And it makes me happy to walk in a room and see friends and be comfortable in the situation and be comfortable with whatever is going to happen when you have no idea what's going to get thrown at you. At the same time, you take a break. And the one thing you're all talking about is how people are, have made records and, and are making records and how much more we have to learn. So how things are continuing to change. Yes. And evolve. Yeah. So we talked earlier about what being a successful session player means. But yeah. for you, when you look at your career, what have you have you ever sort of like defined what success means for you to give you a place to be able to stay solid as things are changing, going up and down throughout the industry? Yes, I'm successful. To make a living at it, you're ahead of the game. Certainly, to make a living exclusively as a session musician, although although that's has that's kind of shrinking. That that club is kind of shrinking a little bit. I have always kind of done both. And the guys that I loved growing up, the guys that I wanted to be kind of always did both. And Lee Sklar and Bob Glaub and did go out. He never told anybody he went out, but he went out. I've kind of, I, I kind of have come up. I've always had uh, some gig. They just haven't worked very much. If you can, if you can, and I think live playing is, valuable and I, th- I don't think you should not do that. It all informs who you are as a musician. Uh, and I think the the more confident you become in who you are as a musician, that line blurs when you go to play live gigs. I'm really just playing songs and I'm concentrating on how can I frame these songs better? How can I get more out of this 
song collectively. And that's what we're all trying to do in the studio. Yeah, so there's a, there's definitely a lot that translates from the yeah. you know, live world to the studio world. Is there anything about both of those things that have made you feel like, I, I like being in this place where I can do both as opposed to, to just one? It makes me more satisfied professionally, for sure. I think there have been periods when I've done more, way more of one and way more of the other, and I'm never happy. I just want, I want to do it all. Having said that, there really haven't been, there have been periods when I have exclusively done sessions, and that's great. In a lot of ways, it's a more secure living to, to just depend on yourself, even though you're self-employed, than it is to depend on whatever gig you're on you know, whether they're going to work or not. When I came to a place where I thought, okay, uh, I'm successful doing this, it's that you have a wide and you've thrown out a wide enough net that, that it becomes a question of what you want to do more, the choices you make more than what you need to do to, to make a living. Yeah. The, the idea of security is something that I find really intriguing because our, our society in general tells us that like you right. go get a job or you, you got to be secure, man, to do something right. and that's going to give you security. But we've seen over history how that doesn't work. And I mean, it's right. starting to happen right now with where our economy is at and people that have very solid, yeah. supposedly secure, you know, corporate jobs are just getting, you know, let go. Right. If we translate that sort of idea into, you know, the music industry, you get a gig with an artist and that artist has a really great year. Um, but then the next year, the label decides they don't really fit into our model for where we're going this year right. and they get dropped. Um, now that tour goes away and you were relying on that income and you sort of stopped building all those other relationships that would have led yeah, to the, you yeah. know, continuous yeah. session work. So the idea that like, being self-employed can be more secure because you have control over crazy, it. crazy, right? Is a, is a kind of a backwards thing to think about. Yeah. And I hear a lot of, but it's the complete truth. And I've found that to be the case. I've, I've always worked for myself out of uh, necessity because yeah. I couldn't get anybody to hire me. And I found, and I learned over the years, like how much more secure that feels, even in the moments of insecurity, because I know that it's up to me. And I, I have the right. opportunity to be able to go out and, and build, make an opportunity for myself versus relying on, uh, yeah. something else to be yeah. sitting and there. And you can make you can make better choices. You can make b better choices musically. Um, you make better choices for your career. You know, I have been in, uh, I, there have been times for me and I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure most people, when you've gone and done something because you had to do it. If your net is wide enough and enough people are calling you, even if it feels like it's random, it's not random. They're calling you. You're on the list somewhere. It's easier to say no. You know, it's easier to come to a point when you go, okay, I need to, uh, I need to put a little bit of juice. I need to kick a little juice into my career, so I don't need to be over here doing this. I need to say no to this and concentrate. I'm not going to drive to this guy's house and be in his basement and do ten songs for for something just because I need to, you know, work. But at some point, you got to have a bigger view. Yeah, and that's a challenging thing to figure out, especially at first, because there's that process of like, right. okay, if I want to do this for a living, i got to make a living, so I kind of got to say yes to everything. Yeah, sure. There's two schools of thought about yeah. that. I tend to – the advice that was given to me by Glenn Worf, who, was a, who is a master and was king of the hill for years, and in my book, it's still one of those guys. The advice that he gave me was to say yes to everything – Especially if you're brand new, 
when it comes back around, it's probably going to come back around. When it comes back around, you know what to say no to. He also said to me the very first night I met him is, welcome to town. There's always room for another great player. Let me buy you a beer. So you just got to dive in. I learned that lesson early on when I went to school. A teacher of mine who, who basically was responsible for sending me to Berkeley when we didn't know, we didn't even know what Berkeley was. He just said, this is where you need to go. His advice to me was, just go play with everybody. Just dive in. And I walked into situations with musicians that were my age who had been playing since they were kids. They'd grown up in New York City. Some of their parents were famous musicians. They'd grown up right in the middle of it. And I walked into musical situations with them having only owned an instrument for a year. <laughs> uh but there was valuable advice, and I'm glad I did it. And I still have that attitude now with new things. When you think about your the the longevity of a career, um, where where do you feel like the the strength comes from being able to have success over the long term once you've gotten to that stage? Knowing when to drop your ego, absolutely. Because for being here for so long, obviously, I don't see myself as ever having. Um, really being at the front of what I was doing. Well, you made it this far, so I'm guessing you're probably either asleep or hopefully enjoying the conversation. If you haven't joined the band yet, there's a free account waiting for you at studiomusicianacademy.com. But that's not all. Since you're still here with us, we'd love to offer you a podcast fan discount on any individual learning session or full catalog subscription on studiomusicianacademy.com. Just use the code podcast to check out. Sorry for the interruption. Now let's get back to it. As far as generating a lot of noise or, you know what I mean? I mean, I crawled my way to the middle and I'm, by God, I'm staying here for a long time. You know? Well, I think that's a humble way of describing You know what I'm saying, though? Career, but. It's, it's um, you, number one, you don't quit. If you love it, you don't quit. And even when you get knocked down and you're going to get knocked down. I have seen waves of, hey, I'm the inside favorite or I'm the, you know, I'm getting hired all over the place. And then you, you work and work and become familiar and somebody meets somebody else and they, and they come in. And I felt that that's rejection to a certain degree. And I have felt that and you need to be able to go, okay, man, that's just going to happen. I'm going to, I'm just going to get up and put my head down. You just got to put your head down and work and not, uh, a place as little importance as uh, on what anybody else is doing as you can. Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be the way that you would that you keep going react in a situation yes. where you're running right through because some it comes back around. Even thing, even if you've lost things, accounts. Although uh, I kind of hate that word, but yeah. even if you've lost opportunities like that, they'll come back around. Sooner or later, I've had things come back around. Oh yeah, to the point where I was in just as much as I was before. It was just—it's a lull. Things go in waves, you know. When we get, when we get too hung up on that one situation and put too yeah. much value on it, it can detract us from just being able yeah. to push forward. So your advice would just be: shit happens, push forward. Absolutely, you can't force anything anyway. Nobody's—you just take shape. You just need to put your head down and work. So with. The, the having a creative career in this in this way I've found to be very rewarding but also maybe a little more challenging because of how much value we put on our work I feel like it's a privilege that we get to do what we love every day 
but it also can become overwhelming because of how much we deeply care about it. Right. It can be a lot easier to just like clock out at the end of the day of a job that we're just showing up for, for a paycheck and not care that, you know, but because we put so much passion into it, it can become a pretty like mentally challenging thing to go through the ups and downs of things, our own self uh, evaluation, you know, we feel like we had a you know a bad day and nobody else in the room. Everybody else is yeah. like, man, you killed it. And you're like, ah, just didn't feel, you know, feel right. right. All of the different things that can happen. Have you found any practices or tools throughout your career that help you stay like just mentally stable and focused and in a good place, like outside of the studio? You mean from other interests? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I have those. I have those issues. Uh, you know, those those are all confidence issues. I don't really, man. I love music. It's it's in me. It's everything that I do. Mm-hmm. You know, when I had a, when I had when I when we had kids, I have a family. My my family was a lot of that for me. But uh, this this world, this musical world, and my professional world, because we spend so much time in it, we have so much invested emotionally. That becomes. Uh, your social life to a certain degree. Right. When you get to, you know, when you're maybe not when so much when you're younger, you're going and hanging all the time, clubbing and whatever. And I think the older you get, the more you realize that's your social life. That's when you get all the, you know, that's when your person to person, friend to friend therapy sessions are. Right. You know, as far as other interests, I never have really had any other interests. So it sounds like your your focus has just been more of a mindset thing. To yeah, to, it's totally mindset. It's totally mindset. It's totally about every day is another step becoming more comfortable with who you are as a person. And that, for me, has always been a musician. So uh, the more comfortable I am with myself as a musician is deeply intertwined with just me generally as a person, how I'm feeling. In the topic of mindset and preparation, are there any things that you do to prepare for just getting your head right before you go into a session or before you start a day? Any preparation practices? I, uh, yeah, I front load the time. Like if I can, I'm, I'm up and fully functioning by the time Uh, there's been plenty of opportunities when I, plenty of times when I've walked into sessions and had, you know, having just gotten up 30 minutes beforehand, I, man, I get up and I start my day early. So by the time I'm walking in the room, I'm fully formed. If I've got a big record, if I've got something that I feel strongly about, which is how I define big record for me, if I've got something that's really important to me, I'm I'm giving myself a a kick, you know, as I'm getting on the interstate, as I'm driving to the session, out loud, vocally. What do you mean by giving yourself a kick? Well, I mean, I'm telling myself, this is, you're the man. You're going to kill this. You're here for a reason. Those are really important things to remind ourselves. Absolutely, uh, yes. And to be in that, be in that space, you know. Yeah, and, and it's, it's something that we don't like talk about a lot, right? You know? No, no, no. So and, it's like, and, yeah, yeah it's, but, it's, man, I find that self motivation and and uh, and uh, focused intention, yeah. so important. Well, it's such a vulnerable spot to put yourself in, and it's not, it's not something you're going to say on a session. Hey, guys, am I am I okay? You know what I mean? You tell yeah. yourself that before you walk in the room because you are. There's a reason you're there. I think, yeah, I think getting up early is, is really important. Is as, as musicians, and a lot of times we're working late. So yeah. there's that, you know, like cycle. But it was really helpful for me c- creatively to start to get into a practice of making sure that, that, that I had a consistent, as much of a consistent as possible, like kind of sleep schedule. Right. So I could get up early because 
I wouldn't be described as like necessarily a morning person. It t- and it sounds like it's what you're saying. Like it takes you a little time to get everything yeah, rolling. Yeah. So now I have this, you know, practice of get up at yeah. uh, 6 a.m., have this workout regimen and like stuff to just get body rolling, um, hang out with the family and then be able to get yeah, to work. Yeah, man, it's Instead important. of just rolling out. and Because that, that can be the common right. musician thing is I'm just going to, I was out late at this late gig. I sure. Sleep longer, you know, or whatever. So making sure that you're that you're up, right. you know, ahead of time. It's important thing. to me to stack the deck. Whenever you can stack the deck, stack the deck. Um, over prepare. Uh, you know, do whatever you. If you need time to get your stuff to get your head right, take the time to do it. Mm-hmm. So thinking back on this amazing career that you've had, is there a, a fun story that you can remember that? Uh, was just an entertaining experience that you had like during during a session. Yeah. Um, in particular, I, I've told this story a couple of times before, but in particular, there was a, I think it's important to remember, even though this is work, we're doing work, we're, we're doing what we've always wanted to do is kind of like, if you can get to this, to into the zone, into a dreamlike state, you know, that's what we're all going for mm-hmm. anyway. Just making music, right? So I did this Dolly Parton record. I was, uh, she was recutting one of her old songs, one of her 60s songs, with some of those musicians. Pig Robbins, who's a legendary A team mm-hmm. piano player, session musician. Uh, he was playing piano, and Lloyd Green was playing steel, and she was singing, and the. Her, what we thought was going to be her scratch vocal was the vocal. And it, we were, I was playing upright at, uh, we were at Blackbird and she was singing, put it off until tomorrow. It's one of the, uh, one of the few times, thankfully, when, when I just told myself, this, this is a moment right here. You need to just close your eyes and appreciate what's going on. And man, it was like, Stepping into time machine to hear that voice and those musicians playing like playing that classic country music like that. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. I would say any time that you're any time that you're playing music that moves you, at least reserve a little bit of your mind to to appreciate what's going on, and that's why we do this, man. That's why we right. do this. Why it makes us feel like that. Absolutely. And having that mindset, it sounds like, is the thing that you keep coming back to that can that can really allow for longevity in a career to yeah. be able to stay grounded in, in really the purpose why I got into it in yes, the first place. Yes, right. I did, um, I did eight days on a record last year with um, Steve Ferroni, who I'd never met before. And while I was listening to him and observing how zoomed out he was playing a song and how he was approaching things and how he was he was building things he was working up to a bridge you know a good 16 20 bars before he got to that point even while I'm learning in that sense I'm thinking oh my god this is Steve Ferroni I'm playing the you know I'm doing a record <laughs> with Steve Ferroni well, thank you so much for for thank coming you, out and doing man. this with I us, man. It. It's been so great to be able to hear your story and be able to hang with you, and, and I hope it's helpful for the people who are All listening. All right, man.